There are certain criminals who are psychopathic and they're very hard to reach. But I don't believe that we should be giving up on 13 and 14-year-olds. I think we have a moral responsibility as a society that cares about our young people to keep trying every avenue that we can to reach them young people. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. They are the kids who become the soldiers of the criminal gangs. Plucked from the streets and troubled homes, they're groomed to become drug dealers, enforcers and even killers. But is their path in life a determined one? Or can we set up roadblocks to stop the inevitable and lead them back to ordered society. This week, I'm talking to criminologist and community activist Trina O'Connor, who has spent decades working with children and teenagers in crime danger zones, where poverty and political failings have left communities on the front line of a catastrophic war on drugs. She tells me how postcode and parenting leave many young people vulnerable to predatory mobs who groom them into lives of crime and disorder. But she says working with young people gives us an invaluable opportunity to ebb the tide. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I often find, Trina, when we get to sentencing, you know, when someone's about to go to jail and you're sitting there and they've committed a crime. In my case, usually they'll be, I'll be covering, a, you know, something to do with gangland. You know, it'll be a shooting or conspiracy to murder or something. But we hear at that point what many people would describe as excuses. The kind of things like their parents got divorced, they had low IQ, they were school dropouts, that kind of thing. Or they had a problem with drugs from an early age. And we have a tendency, I think, to dismiss those Um we think that the people are just trying to get sympathy and get a lesser sentence, which they are, of course, as well. But um, you'd tell us we should be doing anything but that. And it's those backstories, those troubles that we can, where we can find solutions to the bigger problem and we can see early intervention opportunities. So let's go back to think, try and describe for us. Like, what is it like for a child growing up in an area where there is open drug dealing, where there's gang activity and where there's violence in the community and obviously in the homes? So, yeah, you're right. I, I mean, look, we, we all sit there and we hear known to Garda and we hear so many previous convictions. And, you know, most people want to see the state and the organs of the state being hard on crime. But I suppose, like, it's it's not to explain away why people behave in the way they do or to excuse it. I think what we need to do is we need to understand why. Because I know for sure in my work of over 30 years working in communities that young people don't grow up aspiring to go to jail. So... What happens between that piece of childhood and adulthood, and for some young people, unfortunately, adolescents, that end up coming to the attention of the criminal justice system? So what goes wrong? So 
I mean, it, it's extremely complex. However, let's look at a deprived area. Um, a deprived area that might have a lack of services like social services or amenities like youth clubs um, or a, a, a lack of opportunity. So for a lot of these young people, they don't have any social capital. They don't have any networks. In fact, a lot of them are, are, are born with a social deficit, I would argue, because they come into the world with a, a hangover of everything around them before they're even born. They, they may, for the young people that we're speaking about, may come from a background that's problematic in terms of addiction, that the health issue of addiction may be there. Um, and, and addiction is a health issue and should be, in my view, approached in that way. I mean, I look at what's happening with COVID nowadays and I look at the approach that's being done and I look at the uh, multi-agency teams and all the different approaches. And I would argue that if we looked at the scourge of drugs in that way and wrapped services around these areas in that way and approached the war on drugs as a health-led approach, uh, I, I think we would get an awful lot further than we are. Um, so for young people, just going back to your question, young people that suffer um, adverse childhood experiences, which is known as ACEs, um, very often experience trauma. And one of the ways that you can tell when you speak to a young person whether they have ACEs in their background would be, I suppose, if you think about it this way, Nicola, if you ask your friends, what was the day you grew up? Very often they can't tell you because growing up is very gradual. It's a process. It's part of the lifespan. You ask a, an adult that was traumatised in childhood, when was the day you grew up? You want to be prepared for a story because the story they tell you will probably make your hair curl because it's usually trauma. That was the day that the light switched on, that they realised the world is not full of rainbows and unicorns because something happened that traumatised them. Now... The complexity of growing up in that kind of world is that trauma isn't just a once-off event for a lot of these young people. They are traumatised time and time again in various different ways. They lose trust in the state. Um, they might lose trust in the police because, for example, say for a child that's grown up in a domestic violence situation, they grow up with toxic mas masculinity Normally, the domestic violence, not normally, but mainly domestic violence is perpetrated by males to females. It does happen uh, the opposite as well. But in the main, it's male against female. So you might have a young boy watching this, watching the female in his life being brutalised um, by a very toxic male. So they're fearful of the, of the male, but they also look up to that male adult because that's their role model. So that is who they should be. Um, they, they may also be brutalised by the the male as well. And sometimes what happens in domestic violence is women will, you know, to use the colloquial term, get rid of him, but they may bring somebody else in with, with a different name, but with the same behaviours. Mm. So it's a cycle. And then the child gets abused and abused and abused. And that level of toxic stress, not only does it have an emotional um, developmental issue for a young person, it also has a physiological um, developmental problem for young people because it affects the brain. Mm. Toxic stress affects how the brain develops. So when you're a young person living in that world and you need to create a sense of safety in your mind, you will think in black and white. Everything's black or everything's white and that's very normal in childhood. Most people think in black and white. You talk to a child, what do you want? And they'll tell you, mm -hmm. I want this or I want that. There's no in between. In adolescence for people growing up in the normal psychological developmental and meeting them milestones, 
they will start to develop critical thinking as they educate themselves and as they, you know, find their interests and as they find their peer group and as they find their their uh, their gang and whatever it is, um, their football team or whatever. But for a young person that's grown up in a toxic environment, they don't, in the main, develop critical thinking because they're so traumatised that their brain isn't able to process lots of grey areas. And, and I do some teaching with teenagers. And when I say, you know, the world is 50 shades of grey, I do it for the crack and they laugh and they get a bit of banter out of that, but get some thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the world is 50 shades of grey. and So it's an almost, it's an arrested development nearly. Uh, totally, it's an yeah. arrested development. Um, now, it can be, it can be, easily remedied with the right intervention to a cognitive behaviour therapy with the intervention of consistent good role models like one good adult theory, all of these different things we know. And a lot of these young people as well, even going back to theorists like Belby and um, Bandora, looking at the whole attachment disorders. So even infants can have attachment disorders because like what we see happening in uh, Ballymun, a report that came out, um, mm. um, I think last week or the week before. Ballymun Brighter future. Uh, yeah, yeah. Andrew Montagu. Um, I think that that report uh, talks about crack being the main drug that's happening there. Now, the problem with somebody who's in addiction on crack is they're not able to parent mm-hmm. because they're in serious addiction. So when we hear on the news, young person goes to Obertown or a young person being involved in, in criminality for years and years, and we track that back, you might find, not for all of them, obviously, there are some people that just commit crime, let's be clear about it, but in the main, there will usually be a backstory. So if you look at even the attachments, and that's one of the things that within my work, I see as a big problem within some of these bribed, deprived communities is the lack of connectedness with your community. So years and years ago, when I was growing up, 100 years ago, because I'm an L1, um, when I was growing <laughs> Same up... Same age as me, I have to point <laughs> oh, out. Oh, sorry, Nicola. Well, well, you're not an L1. My dad used to say, he'd ask me questions, you know, and he'd say, what about this band and that band? And I'd say, I don't know. And he'd go, you're an L1. And i go, oh. but um, so when you're growing up, when we were growing up, Nicola, I'm sure you remember this, your next door neighbour would say, go to the shops for me. And you'd go to the shops and you'd call them Mrs. O'Reilly or Mrs. Clark. You didn't call people. And you, it was expected that you respected your elders. So very often you hear this discourse and this narrative, these youngsters don't respect their elders. Well, what people don't understand is connectedness is what creates that. And when young people act in an antisocial way, it is usually a, a, a cry for help. So when they're telling us I'm in pain and we're ignoring them or we're criminalising them, say, for example, young people that smoke hash, we're criminalising them, young people, before they can even self-actualise. I would argue that we should look at dealing with hash as a health issue Mm -hmm. and we should be offering interventions to deal with the pain that them young people are are trying to uh, numb using hash. Mm -hmm. So... Connectedness is an important thing because what it does is it creates an attachment to your community. Like when I was growing up, if you if you say the inner city Dublin where my mom's family is from, she walked around the inner city Dublin, everybody know, knew whose kid she was. Nowadays that that's kind of gone in a lot of deprived areas. Um because we have an influx of different communities, which is great. Ireland has become a much more multicultural, but we've got people almost creating social kind of 
situations for themselves in a silo. So you don't have this community where everybody knows each other. You have people with different backgrounds coming from different parts of, of the country, coming from different countries, mm. and they're all operating in different little ecosystems themselves um, with, own, with their own cultures and norms, which is great to see Ireland becoming much more open. But that in itself does cause a problem if there's a crim- criminal element, element mm-hmm. happening within that deprived community. Because what you have then is you have people who don't know each other, so can't knock on the door and work it out. The levels of intimidation in that kind of environment are extreme. So young people of 10 and 11 walking to school may not know why they're frightened, but they're fearful. I mean, these gangs are terrifying. They, you know, I find when you think back, only in our lifetime, yeah. when uh, there's a little piece of actual video footage um, from Hardwick Street flats on RTE. It's around the time of the concerned parents. And there's a couple and they're being interviewed and they say absolutely that they are going to stamp out drug dealing. Oh, yeah. And they believed it. And those people that were involved in those concerned parents, were they brave enough or were they just outraged enough? Is that why they started marching on homes? And I mean, nowadays... People would be too scared. Oh, you wouldn't do that. Um, the concerned parents, you see, that kind of fell asunder because it was kind of overtaken by different kinds of subversive groups and there's a lot mm. of talk about what happened there. So it kind of, I suppose, delegitimized them as a, just a concerned parents group. But I think that the people that, like, I, I don't know who the who the criminal is, but I remember the, the saying, um, and I think it's in your book as well, um, Nicola, where he said when he was being sent down, you think I'm bad waiting. That was Larry see. Dunn. Yeah, Larry Dunn. So you think I'm bad waiting, you see what's coming after me. And uh, he wasn't wrong, because when you look at the effects of intergenerational criminality on families and intergenerational addiction on the brains of people, um things are only spiralling downwards. And the the levels of drugs-related intimidation that some communities are suffering is, it, it's just really, really scary when you look at the figures. Um, and it's certain deprived communities around the the country, and it's not just Dublin-centric. Mm. We know what's going on in Drogheda at the moment. And it's usually just a small number of people within a community that are, you know, like the conductor in the orchestra. And they are making parts of communities no-go areas. They are untouchable, if it feels. Now, look, the cards are brilliant. Eventually they get them. But a lot of damage is done along the way to communities and to young people, for example, particularly vulnerable young people that are naive um, and at risk and hard to reach, but can be reached by these um, tow rags. And that's all they Mm. are. They are preying on vulnerable young, particularly boys. But what we're seeing increasingly is girls are now being used and girls are being used to recruit younger boys by all sorts of scams, you know, maybe convincing the young boy that they're their girlfriend and maybe getting a photograph sent that could be incriminating and then that brings them into, I'm going to show this to everyone. Simple things like that, that a young person who can't think critically, who's only thinking in black and white thinks, I can't tell my mammy because she'll know what I did. So then they don't go and do something like carry something from one house to another and all of a sudden they're in something that's so much bigger than... And, and that level of intimidation is starting very young. And that would bring us perhaps to that Greentown report, which I think yeah. you know a good bit about. Yeah. That was compiled from information from the Garda Juvenile Liaison Officers, um, an unidentified part of Dublin. But it found that 
kids were being lured into gangs. They were being groomed. A lot of them were from families with criminal backgrounds. Um, others were from troubled homes where there's addiction and violence issues. And others were sort of being being moulded yeah. from a very early age to become violent gang leaders. And I've been a very early age. They identified a gang leader being 16. Yeah, um, that, that report, excellent report, I think it was about 2014, 2015, mm. you'll have to correct me, but Dr. Sean Redmond, who does a lot of work with the Department of Justice, um, he was one of the main, and Dr. Johnny Connolly, uh, they were the main kind of authors on that, and they have a brilliant team in the University of Limerick, and I know quite a lot of them, there's Owen and there's uh, Jay McCallie there, who does a lot of work on ACES, I think she did her PhD on ACES. So you've got a very informed group of academics there that have looked, taken a heli helicopter view of what's going on and yet they've identified I think they've identified at that time up to a thousand young people under the age of 16 were involved in uh, criminal gangs as very trusted kind of soldiers for these criminal gangs very organised how it's done understanding the logistics of how many of the people they need within communities to distribute their products, very organised um, a bit like what happens in the UK like the county lines where they look at an area and go, right, okay, this area is deprived. We've got this amount of addiction there. This is how much stuff we can move. This is the kind of stuff that they like, whether it be benzos or whether it be crack or whether it be cocaine, whatever it is. So how many people do we need? What times are good? It is so and organized. And actually looking at an area as like a business model. It is a business model. It is. Like, I, I read a couple of reports before I came in um, over the last couple of days, um, Nicola, and I looked at a report that was done in Ballymun back in the 90s. And the community there were able to very clearly state what the drugs were, where the groups were, how many people were being, you know, targeted for these drugs, what the outcome was going to be without intervention. And at the time, they had no information about crack. They In that report, they said, you know, crack does no kind of information, but it's possible that it will be coming forward. Now, the report that came out a couple of weeks ago, crack is the big drug. So when we look at how these communities are progressing in terms of addiction and the types of drugs and the problems that come with them types of drugs, we're not looking at anything new. We are in an Irish sense, but not when we look globally. So why are we not looking to other countries to see the way these cycles go so that we can learn from the experience of other countries and put the interventions in in a proactive way rather than in a reactive way. And, you know, one of the arguments I often hear from people about deprived communities and about young people, going back to your original um, point about young people who had been in, involved with criminal justice um, or they needed to be caught and eventually throw them away, throw away the key, is that when we look at how interventions are set up. It is all based on the government of the day, the cycle of government, and it is not proactive. So communities, and, and I, I know because I've listened to communities for years, know what the issue is and also very often know what the solution is. But because of the way funding is set up in this country, things are slow to happen. So by the time they happen, something's taken hold. And, and that's the issue that we have with drugs. We don't have time to wait. It's a bit like COVID. We don't have time to wait. We've wasted enough time. We're 40-odd years now on the war on drugs and it hasn't worked. And I would urge that people listen to community leaders when they say, we need 10 youth leaders. They're not making it up. 
Give them the funding. That Ballymun report, Ballymun and Brighter Future, stated that while we cannot eliminate drug dealing, we can do more to protect the next generation of children growing up in Ballymun and reduce the number of traumatic experiences in their lives. They've identified something which is happening more and more. It's called cuckooing, where vulnerable people or drug users' homes are being turned into either crack dens or they're being used to store drugs, weapons, whatever. So they're they're not only a, sort of a cancer on that community, but they're actually getting in there yeah. and they're using the community against itself in yeah. a way. Yeah. Um, Ballymun, I mean, they tore down the high rises. Yeah. They pumped funding into it yeah. to try and do something. It was a mess from the beginning for many reasons. When it was built, it was done so in a blaze of glory. It was to be the place to live. It took people out of tenement homes. It gave them running water, heating. The, the the flats themselves were a good size. The families went into them and it just all went wrong. They didn't build the facilities. They said they would. They never built the swimming pool. They never built the football pitches and there was no resources put around it. I think within years, there was 8,000 people living in the area and they were looking at an absolute massive social crisis. Yeah. So... Then they pump a load more money into it and they tear it all down and they rebuild it. So what is happening in a community like that there now? I mean, it's not going to be fixable overnight, but is it being fixed? Uh, yeah, I think I think there's a lot being done. I think when you look at the whole takeover of houses of vulnerable people, I mean, the Dublin City Council have done a phenomenal job there, working with the guards and working with community leaders to protect people that are vulnerable. And when that's happened, like, you know, um, Dublin City Council have gone in there and made major interventions at great risk to themselves because you're dealing with really serious criminals here that do that kind of thing. Um, so so they're, they're kind of putting out fires. So I suppose when I look at Ballymun right now, we're putting out fires. What I would say is we need to look, and that a part of that report saying we need to protect the next generation, we need to, as a society, give a commitment to the next generation, that they will not grow up being exposed to the levels of stress that their generation did before. Because if we don't, if we don't, this is only going one way and it is spiralled down, downwards. So if a child is coming out of an environment, a, a social construction like Ballymun, and that social construction is toxic, and that child is coming out and being toxic and creating harms against the norms of society, well, we need to look at what we're constructing mm-hmm. as as people within this country. So if you create a toxic environment, what do you expect a child to come out like? I'm not excusing behaviour in any way, but the reality is we need to fertilise what these young people are growing up in. And we need to make sure that if somebody, if a community leader comes to a government department and says, if we can get 10 youth workers in, we can do an intervention piece with these 50 young fellas that we have. Because in Ballymun, for example, there was 50 young fellas that they knew were causing issues. Let's put a youth leader, give them five young people to work with, give them the funding for five years to get them over that hump of adolescence, mm. to build a scaffolding around them, to build a bridge between between childhood and adulthood in a pro-social way rather than criminalising them. Because the reality is, for every one euro we invest in early intervention, we save the exchequer four euros in um, prison costs, all these other interventions. So if people even want to look, if they don't want to look at it in a holistic way, in a humanistic way, they want to look at it as an economical thing. 
for every one euro we we invest, we save four euros. So, like, we know what the outcomes are going to be for young people who experience and all the things I've outlined to you. Why are we not intervening? What, like, it, it is based on the the ministers of the day, the policies of the governments. Um, and at the moment, projects are having to having to apply for fundraising every year. And that is, I know somebody working in that area. I mean, that takes a long time to get your head around how to apply and uh-huh. how to do so successfully. Trina, you're, while well, you're an academic, yeah. you're also like, you're down on the ground and you know you I'm down work. with the kids. You're down with the kids. <laughs> I'm not, but I try to be. You've worked. I have my TikTok mask. Face to face with these kids. You really know them inside out. You know these communities inside out. And I think you would be a, a great woman for, for extolling the virtues of youth clubs. And that's really where you yeah. started off your love for community and for trying to help kids. So I grew up in Artane, uh, Harmo, some people know it by, even though Harmo sounds only a road, but um, when we were younger, it was like, I'm from Harmo, you know, because then you weren't messed with. Um, but I, I was a, a club member of St. Paul's uh, Youth Club in our time, which was the St. Vincent de Paul Youth Club. And they had like a whole network of St. Vincent de Paul Youth Clubs. And to say it was phenomenal is an understatement because it was a place where uh, you could be a kid and just play basketball and sports. And they used to bring us on a club holiday and uh, you didn't watch television for a week, for example, and nobody had phones, of course. So I'm really showing my age. But um, <laughs> you played sports the whole week and, and it was just it was just good fun. But one of the things that triggered my interest in, I suppose, um, in social issues was one night they brought a man out and he was from Ballymun because Ballymun was in the height of the heroin epidem- uh, epidemic when I was a teenager, which was the mid, early to mid 80s. And... Um, they brought this man out who had been in addiction to heroin, who was in recovery, who was now given back to his own community. But he came out and he gave us a talk about heroin and other drugs. And he spoke to us about how drugs made him feel, what they did for him in terms of numbing his pain, because drugs we know are, you know, the best painkiller, aren't they? So if you're in pain, whether it's physical or emotional. And he explained how the cycles of drugs can get you involved in all sorts of things, for example, criminality. And that made me really think about, you know, how lucky I was because I had two parents. Um, and it, my parents were very young when they had us. Like, my mother was 23 and she had four kids. Um, but my parents were really funny people. My mother's still living and still funny. Uh, makes me laugh every day. Um, my dad sadly passed away uh, just a, a short year ago. And... Um, they were just really good fun parents and they were down with the kids. Um, but they came from really hard backgrounds. Like my dad had 15 siblings. My mom had 10. Um, my mother came from the inner city tenements. Um, you must have a never ending supply of cousins. I know, I know. I think I probably have over 100 oh, cousins. Oh God. Yeah, and I've got some amazing cousins. Some I don't know so well, but I know all their names. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I do. I've never been short of friends. You know, because there's so many of them. Um, so my mother came from the inner city, from the tenements. Her family lived in there, but her family, um, her grandmother uh, was uh, Molly Spratt, who was well known in the area. And um, she would have been uh, somebody who would have went to wash the, the dead. And she ended up working for Jennings, I'm sure. And she used to bring my mother with her, um, which was probably the wrong thing to do. My mother was only a kid. 
But my mother laughs at it now, and I'm kind of like, oh, my God. <laughs> and then my dad, his mother came from Waterford, and um, she came to Dublin in circumstances, I'm not really sure. But she married uh, my granddad, Flash. He was known as um, well-known Dublin Corporation worker, Flash, because his buttons were always so shiny, they'd flash, you know? Right. And he was a real character. And uh, But they lived in Ballyferma originally, and then they got a house in Artane. So my mum and dad grew up in poverty. Now, my grandmother was a market trader and my mother was a market trader. My dad was a bricklayer. And I think that my parents um, were wise enough to know that they needed to know our friends because they needed to know who we were hanging out with and who was influencing us. So it was very, I think, uh, forward thinking of them, you know. And do you think there's a, you know, in a stable home, hypothetically, we'll take a home, a stable home like your own was, do you think there's a great risk if you're living in a community which is one of these communities ravaged by these drug gangs? Is there as big a risk that that child could be groomed into the gang as a child that's from a, a more damaged home? Yeah, I, I think the, the figures will show you that. I mean, the statistics all stand up to what you're saying because when a young person is in an environment where somebody may not be present, they may be physically present, mm. but they may not be mentally present because of their own trauma or because of their own addiction. And I mean, the parent in the in this case are, are the, um, the guardian of the child. People who are looking to groom children into criminal activity are a bit like paedophiles looking to groom children into um, being able to sexually abuse them. They will spot vulnerabilities in a child and they will walk on that child or they can also do it in a very opportunistic way and they can see a vulnerable child and in a heartbeat they can change the, um, the trajectory of that young person's life because if a young child is traumatised, say, by a, a sexual event by an adult um, or a young child is given drugs and said, take that, and all of a sudden they've swallowed a pill, that's how easy it can happen mm. for some young people. Now, the other side of it, the organised criminal gangs, they're extremely patient. They'll sit back and they'll watch and they will strategize what they're going to do. And they will identify children and they'll test that child. They'll test their loyalty. Um, they may work on intimidating them and creating a, a fear-based relationship. So that might be like an initiation piece where they're beaten up by the other boys and told if you want to be protected, you need to become one of us. Mm. Uh, or they may be then asked to beat somebody else up. And then it's, well, have I told your mother that you beat young Johnny up? So they get something on them, they get a hook on them. So um, it, it's very subversive, it's very insidious and it's very organised. And to help a young person out of that when they've got in, either they have sold drugs themselves um, or they've delivered them or stored them or whatever and all of a sudden they feel part of that. Is it ever too late? Can you never, is, is there a point where they're unreachable by services, by, by youth workers, by healthcare workers, whoever it is? Is there a point that they've gone too far? Yeah, I, well, well, here's the question, isn't it? When does it change from a traumatised child to a hardened criminal? Like, is it when they turn 18? Mm. Be, I, I, I mean, I can't answer that, but I think that there are certain criminals who are psychopathic and they're very hard to reach. But I don't believe that we should be giving up on 13 and 14-year-olds. I think we have a moral responsibility as, you know... It, it, a society that cares about our young people 
to keep trying every avenue that we can to reach them young people. For example, one of the things that the Violence Reduction Unit in Glasgow did was they set up putting um, trauma-informed youth workers in touch with A&Es. So when a child comes to A&E with a very obvious um, injuries a from, from a beat, a gu- well, in, this, in Ireland you wouldn't really get much mm. gunshot, but say a stabbing, mm. right? They're at their most vulnerable in terms of they're at their most reachable for either the organised criminal gang or a trauma-informed youth worker. We need to have them services on site. So if a child comes into the matter, the matter need to be able to ring Trina, the youth worker, and say, Trina, we have a kid here. Obvious signs of a, you know, a violent altercation, just a stabbing. Would you come and have a chat with them? That trauma-informed youth worker comes in and spends some time with that young person and gives them the, the, the roadmap out of what they're in by providing support. And that's the piece that we need to do as a society. That's not happening in this country? No, because the services, the, the community, deprived communities identify these issues, go to government departments, government departments moves over them, maybe the government changes, maybe they have to start all over again, maybe funding cycle is not in the right funding cycle. So when things are identified, they're just dampened out, with, you know, or they might give them some funding, but they're not guaranteed it. So how are you going to attract the best people, the most qualified people to a temporary six-month contract? Because people that work in these services need surety of job as well mm. um, to get, keep the right people. And also to develop programs, you need to know that you're going to be there in 12 months' time. So it's it's the way that kind of, that resourcing of this type of, you know, what we need in a proactive way, in a holistic approach, that that needs to be looked at. I, I feel that these government um, departments that have surety of budgets should be able to give a, a little bit more, maybe multi-annual funding or something like that. You've been working at this for quite some time, yeah. but you still seem to be really positive. Oh, yeah, because I see people all the time. Like, I walked I walked in the fire station on, on uh, Buckingham Street and I walked with young people and uh, they, were just, they were just the most adorable young people. They were, like, between the age of somewhere as young as 15 up to uh, 21. And it was a second chance education. It was a community development project. And I remember I asked the guards from Star Street to come round and do a piece on drugs and they were brilliant. They came round and they brought all the drugs and stuff and, you know, explaining what they were and explaining the different avenues that young people have to get out of this. And uh, w- when the guards came in, one of them put the book down, I, had drugs. I said, will you, f- for Jesus' sake, pick that thing up? Don't walk away from that. And they were laughing. And one of them said to me, I recognise a few people here. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was saying, don't write them off. And the guards were very good. They were like, no, no, we won't. But you do know who they are. I say, I know who they are. So there were some people in my community development um Project Two uh, Community uh, Training Centre, sorry, CTC, um, who came from backgrounds that were well-known. Um, and one of them ended up working in um, a huge multinational. 
like to me that's huge like and 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 so many other good stories like we we did a huge project with the arts um the fire artists uh, studio in in buckingham street and we did this huge creative piece around 3d printing and virtual reality and ardlow hanlon came in and did a piece with us uh just like you know a press piece with us. like people are so willing to help out and all of the times that the young people see these acts of kindness it it shifts their brain away from an act of trauma and each positive intervention they have um can create a new pathway for them it can make them start thinking differently these people are interested in me why are they interested in me i have potential i can be like a lot of the young people that that i worked with have all went on and not me personally, by the way, it wasn't just my intervention. There was a team of very dedicated teachers, wonderful teachers that worked. I was just a manager, like, you know, they did the hard work and created structures around these young people. So if they came with um, an, an issue, we dealt in a very restorative way. So we we didn't come down on them in a kind of a punishment way. We we had circles where we sat around and we trashed things out and would have been very good at coming up with restorative ways of dealing with an issue in the classroom. Um, yeah, no, I am very, very positive because you do see in the main, like most people get out of these cycles. Mm. Like if you look at Ballymun, something like 97% of the people there have no interaction with criminal justice at all. And of the 3% maybe... Uh, that are involved, maybe 1% may stay in it, but the other 2% will get out with the, given the right supports and structures. Well, I have to say, Trina O'Connor, I think if if uh, a few more of us were as kind as and as invested in kids and in teenagers that are in trouble, we'd be living in a far better place. So thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. From sundayworld.com, this is Crime World, produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page, Crime World with Nicola Talent.